liberalism today in the 21st century has a tension between, on the one hand, being the ideology and, in fact, the supreme conformist ideology, the canon and the, the catechism of our ruling class, but it also believes that you should have democracy. Well, there's a problem there. If you have democracy, what if the people elect Donald Trump? So um, you have this. This, I think, is the crux of the crisis of liberalism. On the one hand, it wants to believe that it has the mandate of heaven from the people, that it has the that it speaks for the vox populi, but it doesn't. And in fact, the people are not nearly as liberal as either their you know sort of capitalist uh, you know leaders or their you know sort of progressive academic journalistic liberal leaders would like them to be. Welcome to Nix. Finding nuanced discussions on controversial topics is difficult. We're building a technology platform to fix that. Join our waitlist to be part of the solution. In this debate, we have Professor Samuel Moyen and Daniel McCarthy discussing the current state of liberalism. You can find their bios and relevant links in the show notes. Also remember to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter at the underscore Nix. We hope you enjoy the debate and tell us at the link below what you'd like to see next. All right. Well, thank you uh, to each of you for coming. I have been looking forward to this. Um, and also, I will say that um, my head has been swimming on this topic uh, since we've talked about it. I've read um, your book, Sam, uh, your article, and then two of uh, Deneen's, uh, Professor Deneen's books. And then before that, I talked to um, uh, Professor Zwolinski and Dr. McManus on a, on a similar topic. And so I just got – there's a lot going on here, so I'm very interested to hear what you guys have to say. So um, I will try to mostly be a fly in the wall and let you guys kind of directly talk to each other rather than asking questions and all that because uh, I'm mostly interested in what you guys have to flesh out between the two of you. But I think first what would be helpful is to just uh, – Probably have uh, Sam do a quick definition of liberalism, just so we're all on the same page, because it's one of these big words. Uh, and then, Daniel, if there's any refinements to that definition that you'd like to provide, uh, go for it. And then from there, we can kind of dive into the meat of the topic. Well, it's a tough place to begin, to be honest, because uh, I think there's just a big difference um, among different uh, observers about how to define the thing we're talking about. And my own argument is that liberalism has changed a lot. And actually, that's, you know, my complaint that w w some some good things about liberalism were lost as uh, it was redefined. Um, you know, I think it's traditional to think about liberalism as the like, you know, f theory of modern times that says individuals are free uh, and they have rights and government exists to protect those rights. Uh, John Locke in the 17th century would be the kind of leading kind of thinker. The trouble is he never described himself as a liberal. Uh, that concept doesn't come into being until, you know, more than a century after him. When the first liberals come about in the 1820s, they're really interested in the French Revolution and preserving its legacy and making it institutionally, you know, durable. And they thought 
what we need to figure out is how to bring about a society of free and equal human beings for the first time. And they disagree about how. Um, Americans don't call themselves liberals until after World War I. I mean, there's a very few people who get inspired by English liberalism and the English liberals have a party uh, that's called the Liberal Party. But it's only after World War I with the founding of the New Republic magazine that what, what we call progressives, those who paved the way for Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal and economic redistribution, uh, get to brand American liberalism. Uh, and so that's lost too, obviously, in a neoliberal era where the emphasis is more on you know, class inequality uh, and elite rule than Franklin Roosevelt's version of liberalism was supposed to be about. So I think you know, from the beginning, we're in a kind of definitional quandary because everyone is kind of has a self-interested perspective on how to define the thing we're debating. And I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that kind of independently of debating, you know, what should happen. And Daniel, any any follow-up on that from your end? Uh, any any differences in understanding of the term? Yeah, I agree with the uh, big picture that uh, Sam has presented. And, um, you know, reading through his book, or at least skimming it uh, in preparation for this, uh, I think we have, you know, many areas of agreement, but also we'll have some very uh, stark differences of emphasis and uh, perhaps uh, something that uh, Sam will see as a virtue, I might see as a vice, and uh, the other way around. So um, I would agree with Sam's uh, description of the history of liberalism. In fact, when I was looking at Sam's book, I was thinking to myself, you know, there probably are about five eras of liberalism in the English-speaking world. And of course, if we go beyond that, we have an even more complicated picture. Um, we might begin with uh, this idea of uh, the Enlightenment as itself already being liberal. Um, so this would be, you know, a series of thinkers uh, from John Locke, and in fact, perhaps even earlier, going back to Thomas Hobbes in some accounts, um, that, that even though they didn't label themselves as liberals, that they were the founding fathers, intellectually speaking, of the school of thought that would ultimately become liberalism. Um, I'm always skeptical of that. So that point of view says that in the 17th and 18th century, you had all these thinkers, again, from Hobbes and Locke all the way through to the American founding fathers, for example, and that all of them were fundamentally liberal. Um, Sam has already, I think, pointed to one of the problems with that, which is if you then take the um, common ground that these 17th and 18th century thinkers had, and of course, among them, you have a great many differences as well. But even if you take the sort of center of gravity among those Enlightenment thinkers and then compare them to the actually self-identified liberals of the 19th century, you see vast differences. So um, one of those, of course, being on a point that Sam had said is, is fundamental to many people's understanding of liberalism, which is the idea of natural rights. Um, many of the uh, most prominent uh, figures identified with liberalism in the English-speaking world in the 19th century um, referred to natural rights as nonsense on stilts. They were they were utilitarians. Uh, you know, it was not natural rights, certainly not in a Lockean sense that they uh, were believers in. And in fact, they were very much attracted to uh, the sort of new Darwinian waves of thinking, not, not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, Darwin himself, but the general belief in a sort of evolutionary progress of civilization as well as uh, in biology. And that, you know, has a lot of ramifications because not only does that apply to, um, you know, geological evolution, it applies to animal evolution. 
But of course, ultimately, you're going to get various forms of social Darwinism and eugenics also out of this. And of course, today, it's, um, you know, I think it's extremely antithetical to most liberals, this idea of eugenics. But in the early 20th century, in fact, you know, most leading lights of liberalism had eugenic tendencies. And there, there are subtleties here. So someone like H.G. Wells, for example, or someone like even Herbert Spencer a little earlier, um, they have their eugenic side, but it's not necessarily the kind of uh, coercive eugenics that one might identify with the Nazis, or even for that matter with the policies that some of the Scandinavian countries and indeed the United States pursued in the early 20th century. So to go back, though, I think in the 19th century, you have a liberalism which is not necessarily about rights as a philosophical principle, but does have this very strong belief in progress, this very strong belief in human rationality. Um, and that, I think, is one of the key earmarks of liberalism. The liberalism of the 19th century tended to be a very strongly free market liberalism. And liberalism's criticisms of the existing social order in Europe, uh, and in Britain in particular, was um, coming from the perspective that there were too many constraints upon uh, the capitalist class, too many constraints upon what businesses could do. Some of those constraints, uh, you know, especially at the beginning, were coming from sort of uh, feudal inheritances. And, um, you know, Jeremy Bentham, the great utilitarian, some people would call him a liberal, some people might not, but certainly Bentham's project was very influential on early liberals like James Mill and his son, John Stuart Mill. And Bentham wanted to get rid of this entire feudal inheritance and create a much more rationalized system of law that would be beneficial to business interests, but also beneficial to individuals and their liberty. So that's maybe the second kind of liberalism, the first kind of liberalism properly so-called in the English-speaking world. And there's this little, you know, sort of footnote that should be recognized that um, the first people who identify themselves as self-identified liberals are actually in Spain. And um, relatively little um, uh, um, scholarship in the English-speaking world focuses on this group. And so I have, you know, not a lot to say about them. They're interesting because they admired the British Constitution. So there is a sense in which Englishness is something that comes up again and again in the history of liberalism. So if we go back to the earlier period, someone like Voltaire is looking at England as a commercial society, a relatively free society compared to France, and he very much admires that and wants to emulate that. Uh, if we look at these self-identified liberals in Spain um, in you know, the era around the time of the French Revolution, early 19th century, they too are looking at the idea of an English parliament as something that they would like to have. They're interesting because they, they actually are critical of the French Revolution itself. They're not as radical as the French revolutionaries, but they are more what we might call progressive or more liberal, certainly, than those who want to reinstate you know, the full semi-absolute or totally absolute uh, Spanish monarchy. So uh, there are complications as we look at you know, different parts of the world. Um, Sam in his book, I think, draws an important distinction between um, two developments in the late 19th and then in the early and mid 20th centuries. So you do have a uh, form of liberalism that gets you know, a lot of uh, momentum in the late 19th century and then becomes kind of the dominant form of liberalism before World War I, which is a liberalism that is similar to the old 19th century liberalism, but that is no longer as devoted to the market. Uh, it has now recognized that the demands of socialist movements, for example, have to be responded to politically. You have thinkers like John Maynard Keynes, who also think that there are difficulties in a pure free market economic system. And so these liberals of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they adopt a much more uh, accommodating view of the role of state power in an economy and in politics and society than the liberals of old. So there's a continuity between them, but also uh, this rather important difference. Um, Sam's book points to how after this phase, you then get uh, Cold War liberals. 
Um, and this is, of course, you know, after World War II, but even before World War II, some of the um, intellectual uh, um, tendencies that will lead to Cold War liberalism can be discerned. And this, you know, is and this is where you know Sam and I might start disagreeing. Um, I think there is something to be said for a lot of these Cold War liberals, and it's precisely on the grounds that Sam criticizes them for, which is they become more chastened. They say, wait a minute, maybe liberalism is not the way of the future, as liberals up until now have always assumed. Maybe real radicalism and real, you know, sort of uh, the real, you know, sort of uh, most uh, uh, future moving direction of humanity is communism or is something much more radical, in which case we need to, you know, kind of at least slow down the advance, maybe go backwards, maybe just stop it cold in its feet. But the Cold War liberals have this side to them. And uh, perhaps Sam will be talking about that a little bit later on. And then finally, um, we have... Um, after the Cold War, you know, starting towards the end of the Cold War, but then really taking off in the 1990s and afterwards, what the kind of liberalism that we have today. And this kind of liberalism, it has returned to the idea of rights. Uh, and that's why liberals today, when they talk about uh, their philosophy, they tend to emphasize this, you know, um, somewhat, you know, sort of uh, partly fictional, but partly correct uh, view of themselves as going back to John Locke and going back to, you know, these, uh, you know, fundamental natural rights that cannot be cast aside. Uh, and they, they downplay sometimes their utilitarian uh, heritage. And uh, liberalism today um, basically says, well, now that the Soviet Union has been defeated, we really can say that liberalism is indeed the end of history and that this is the best system for all of humanity to adopt. And the only thing standing in the way of humanity adopting this perfect system of liberalism, which is going to involve now a, a, a new embrace of markets once again, but it's not a, a return to the kind of small government free market system that uh, many of the uh, you know, 19th century liberals had thought about. Instead, it's a mixture of maintaining welfare states while also having free trade agreements and also having uh, a very wide, you know, sort of opening for entrepreneurship and other things. So it's a mixed system. And, uh, you know, Sam and I might have some disagreements about the nature of this mixed system, but I think it does have, you know, it is different from the old 19th century in, in several respects. And um, really, the only thing holding back human progress, which is for liberals synonymous with liberalism itself, are a few um, either accidental or pathological uh, rogue states around the world and um, sort of um, uh, old inheritances and old sort of ways of, of you know, thinking. Uh, perhaps some of them are religious. Perhaps some of them are just, you know, sort of, uh, you know, residue or detritus of history. But a, a sort of um, element in our own society, which is just, you know, basically it's pathological. It needs to be, you know, sort of clinically addressed and it needs to be re-educated. Education is a very important theme throughout uh, liberalism. Liberalism likes to emphasize that it is anti-coercive or opposed to coercion. But liberalism is very strongly about taking children and basically making sure that they believe the right things so they grow up to be good liberals uh, later on. I'll just wrap up. I know I've gone on a bit long here, but I'll just wrap up by saying that, um, you know, liberalism uh, has this general belief in, in, in progress. Uh, uh, Sam, again, gives us, you know, some examples, however, of people in the Cold War era who, who had doubts about progress. But in general, uh, liberalism is progressive. Liberalism is confident about the human intellect for the most part. And it does believe that uh, either we can have well-designed policies in our governments today that are going to make us all free and perhaps equal, certainly very prosperous. But this can be something that intellectuals, well-trained economists, for example, and, you know, and lawyers and so forth, they can all provide this for us. And then among liberals today, there is a mixture between some who think that the market 
uh, can provide uh, everything that we need, and some who say that we still need to have some degree of human intelligence overseeing the process through state power. So uh, that's my perception of liberalism historically and today. I love that. I, I just want to intervene to, you know, make one very small amendment in what was otherwise a totally brilliant and convincing presentation. It's really about the first, uh, f sorry, the first self-styled liberals, so Dan's <laughs> second stage uh, in the history of liberalism, because I agree with a lot of what you said, but I think there's one missing piece, especially when you look at the first big set of liberals who are not in Spain, but France. Um, and, you know, they're all romantics in uh, the kind of sense that they really are part of the, um, you know, romantic movement in intellectual life and in aesthetics of their time. And it's true that, you know, even John Stuart Mill, one of their heirs in England, talks the language of utility that he got from his father and Jeremy Bentham before him. But all of these liberals actually think that uh, liberalism is about promoting um, cre creative freedom. Um, and it's almost like life is supposed to be a, a kind of emancipated chance to, you know, go your own way, make your life interesting or, you know, um, innovative, um, and that doing so individually or in small groups will contribute to this collective perfection or progress that Dan talked about. And so to me it's really important because I totally agree that these liberals were enamored of the free market or laissez-faire and they thought it would do a lot of the work of progress that Dan mentioned, but it, 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 it's very important that this stage of liberalism is um, really most committed to this new moral ideal, which is free self-making uh, as what life's supposed to be about, uh, if you like, as, as what, what our highest end in life is and ought to be. Yeah, I very much uh, agree with that, and I'm glad that you emphasized it. Um, John Stuart Mill calls this experiments in living, and uh, there very much is a sense that this is not only a way of, of breaking free from the old legal restraints. And I emphasize that, you know, in talking about the kind of anti-statism and free market orientation of 19th century liberalism. But it's also about breaking away from the moral inheritance of right. the existing society, whether that's religious or simply uh, the conventions and mores of society. And so especially these creative and brilliant individuals, and I think you're quite right, this is also a romantic impulse. It's the, you know, sort of heroic creator. They have, you know, they, they need to have the freedom to be able to discover new ways of living and in a way that they're going to they're going to serve almost as entrepreneurs of, of lifestyles, just exactly. as in the you know, free market. You have entrepreneurs who create new products for people. The you know, experiments in living will produce new modes of living that may help us be more authentic to ourselves. And there is, you know, Rousseau is a, an interesting character to, to bring up in the context of liberalism because he hated most of the, you know, certainly the superficial elements that would be associated with, you know, um, even the liberalism of, you know, sort of the, 
the proto-liberal phase of uh, the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, right. and he wouldn't like a lot of 19th century liberalism either. Rousseau was not a fan of, you know, uh, market economics. He was not a fan of legislatures. He didn't like, you know, uh, many of these things that liberals tend to take for granted. But he did have this sense that we are alienated from our true selves and that there is a need to overcome this alienation through a reorganization of society. And uh, that is something that the liberals are, um, you know, they are descendants of, of Rousseau in that regard. Agreed. So, you know, liberals really in this phase were for a kind of politics of personal authenticity. Uh, and, and then the question is whether that's a, 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 an important and legitimate uh, kind of politics, you know, w whether it devolved into kind of a, a, a kind of hollower consumerist form, um, you know, or, yeah, or, or what, you know, and, and I, and I totally agree with Dan that it's strongly anti-authoritarian because it says that, uh, what, what God commanded or what one's father did doesn't, you know, determine what I do, what I, who I choose to become in the world. One of the difficulties, though, that liberals are facing already at that point in the 19th century is the tension between the utilitarian, the rational, and the market-determined um, results and uh, the spirit of freedom and experimentation. So, um, you know, certainly there are plenty of images from Victorian novels uh, and Victorian history, for that matter, of the kind of regimentation that is imposed by the new economic system. And uh, Tocqueville talks about this as well in Democracy in America. Uh, Tocqueville you know, has a very interesting, complicated you know, relationship with liberalism and with you know, market economics as well. He dislikes socialism. He accepts uh, democracy as something that is inevitable now and has to be made the most of. But he also has, I think it's in the second volume of Democracy in America, a very poignant, um, you know, uh, chapter on uh, the kind of inhumanity of the factory system. And it's, it's not based on, you know, um, just economic suffering. It's really based on the idea, and it, and it is this, this notion of alienation, that by, um, you know, working in a factory and simply hammering away at the same uh, nails, you know, every single day or creating the same pins every day, that you are not, you know, fulfilling your capacities as a human being. So there's a tension going back all the way to the, you know, 19th century uh, and the early phases of liberal, liberalism between, on the one hand, um, some of the regimentation, and uh, and that's ultimately going to be social as well as economic regimentation that seems to be required by market efficiency and by the you know overall demand of you know efficiency as a kind of supreme goal and uh, utility as a supreme goal versus um, actually having the freedom uh, both of you know sort of the personal freedom and also the the leisure time to enjoy all of these wonderful new consumer products and the wonderful new ways of life that have been uh, created. And I think this, you know, you, you'll find this in Patrick Deneen's books. I think you'll find it in a great many critics of liberalism. This problem with liberalism has never been resolved. That even now, you know, you have the, the case of people who are earning enormous sums of money uh, working on Wall Street or wherever else, yet they have no time to actually live as human beings. So on the one hand, they are, you know, sort of triumphs of the liberal model, but they're also tragedies of liberalism. And, uh, you know, and, and even even being aware of this situation, they, you know, feel like they can't get off the treadmill. They can't actually step back and enjoy life, uh, which is why you find this interesting, you know, sort of dynamic in Europe. Uh, they're forced to step off the treadmill, more or less, and it's become a habit to take long vacations. And, um, you know, perhaps we'll get into some of the details of the policies later on. 
But, um, you know, it, it is interesting to see liberalism have this, you know, sort of contradiction at its heart all the way from the 19th century, which even today is still a major, you know, flashpoint for criticisms of liberalism. So, no, okay, I, we... Go ahead. Go ahead, Thane. Uh, keep, keep going. I, I uh, don't want to interrupt your guys' train, uh, so keep keep going. Well, I was just going to mention, you know, that, um, you know, that Dan mentioned John Maynard Keynes and associated him with the third stage of liberalism when liberals became more, you know, aware of the, you know, possible tension between their earlier tool of laissez-faire and their ends. Um, and for Keynes, it was also the end of creative freedom. You know, he was very much personally associated with experiments and living, uh, and uh, he wrote an, a, a quite, you know, I think exhilarating piece uh, called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, where, you know, he revealed, I think, very clearly that he intended to, you know, update not, not just the the third stage of liberalism, but, you know, the, the, the second stage, which was that romantic stage by in a sense, saving romantic individuality as Mill had called it from the, the, the whole problem of the economy, not just laissez-faire, but even the kinds of reforms, uh, with which Keynes, uh, was intimately involved. So in this essay, you know, which I think is written in the course of World War II, he, you know, reports that the economic problem is about to be solved and soon humanity will have to face its real problem, which is how to live an interesting life, um, especially when it's not just the economy which tempts people to copy others uh, and just, you know, buy the latest popular thing just because, you know, economic trends have presented it uh, uh, to us. And, and he struggles with this, but, you know, as, as Dan's pointing out, it's never the case that liberals give up on perpetual growth because they've never kind of truly ruptured their relationship from the 19th century to a kind of economism. Uh, and it's true that they adjusted the terms of that uh, economism to leave more room for the state and some redistribution and so forth and, uh, and welfare, uh, safe, social safety nets. But uh, Keynes's dream of kind of saving liberalism from the whole economic problem uh, is not something that liberals have ever tried to do. Yeah, I would just add, I guess, on the uh, point about um trying to save, uh, you know, sort of spontaneity in human relationships and in the human personality from, uh, you know, the, the tendency of regimentation that one might get from the market or from other forms of liberalism. Um, I've, we, we've talked a little bit about the difficulties that, you know, perhaps the market and its needs and its demands of efficiency impose upon such uh, human freedom. But there's also um, the other side of liberalism. It's kind of intellectual attempt to comprehend human nature within a perfect intellectual description. And it's it's um, paternalistic side, which is, um, again, going back, you know, to Rousseau, who, you know, I'm not saying that he is a liberal, but he is someone who's a, a profound psychologist and he, he has insights so that liberals they. cannot afford to overlook, um, which is, OK, so if people are alienated from their true selves, if they're if they are leading inauthentic lives, what can you do to help them lead more authentic lives? 
Um, now, one of the ways in which Keynes is, you know, sort of ahead of his time and is one of the architects of our own era, um, he's also, he has, you know, an essay on, I think he calls it the sex question. And he's very much aware that women's rights and, you know, think contraception and so forth. He doesn't quite talk about something that would, you know, equate exactly to the sexual revolution of the mid or mid to late 20th century. But certainly there are intimations in that direction, which, you know, Keynes was very much aware of. But then you have this paradox where, I mean, you know, today, but also, you know, going back you know, decades now, um, one of the liberal ways of making sure that people can have fulfilled sex lives is we're going to have sexual education. But sexual education involves precisely the kind of educational regimentation and, you know, I mean, just the whole thing is the idea of taking a classroom and using that as a, you know, sort of a romantic or an amorous, you know, setting. Um, that doesn't work very well, especially in the kind of cold rationalistic way that, um, you know, liberals want to, you know, convey ideas. So uh, liberalism, uh, it, it has this ongoing conflict in its soul about um, romanticism about authenticity, and it realizes not just the market, but even intellect itself is in some ways in conflict with that. And, you know, in the case of John Stuart Mill, famously, you know, he's brought up by his father, James Mill, as a strict utilitarian, leading, you know, the optimally rational life. He has kind of a nervous breakdown, and in fact, his his relationships and his, his you know, sort of inner image of himself is in some turmoil throughout his life because of this upbringing. Um, he, he turns to the poetry of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who starts out as, you know, uh, an admirer of the French Revolution and a romantic poet, but who becomes, you know, later on something of a, you know, rather Burkean conservative, a Hegelian conservative. And uh, Mill says, wait a minute, I actually need this, you know, side of my life as well. And, you know, I would argue that Mill ultimately is going to undermine um, Coleridge. He's ultimately going to undermine conservatism as a whole. But Mill recognized that, you know, liberalism had a certain deficiency here, not just on the utilitarian side, but in the lack of, you know, the kind of, um, you know, uh, less rationalistic approach to human humanity's nature that one finds among many conservatives. Um, yeah. I think it's a deep problem. And, and, you know, the real question, I think probably the difference between us is whether there's some alternative to facing it, um, you know, and I, I guess I think that, um, of course, it's true that there's going to be something in the end mystical about what this creative freedom, you know, is seen to produce. I mean, and who gets to value it and, you know, know it when they see it. Um, but we all also, you know, you know, know that, like, in spite of all the difficulties, people would have to be trained uh, to pursue it. Maybe not the way John Stuart Mill was, you know, maybe exposure to romantic poetry from their earliest days rather than, you know, in the course of a mental health crisis. Uh, and, you know, the kind of technocracy involved in the, the pedagogy of liberalism, training people to be free is going to involve a lot of, you know, difficult choices and tensions and maybe even trade-offs that are, 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 are difficult, but, you know, maybe ones that have to be faced. And then, you know, there's there's this difficult question about how we look out at the world and we do see lots of conformity, especially in so far as, you know, capitalism becomes more and more consumer capitalism. Uh, and if we're not able to say that some people are throwing their freedom away rather than, you know, figuring out how to use it correctly, then we're just not looking out at the world um, and looking at it, you know, 
as it really is. And liberals want to do that, um, at least the ones I'm championing. But it's absolutely true. Like, who's to say that, you know, what I think is creative, uh, it, it, it really is and is not some other form of slavery or trend following or that what I'm dismissing as conformity is not actually creative. And, you know, that that's a an, an enormous, you know, difficulty and probably there are risks in confronting it but the question is whether there are alternatives to liberalism that would save us from these very important you know problems yeah i would agree this is a human human problem and not just a, a problem of liberalism um there are ways in which um traditions for example can actually be liberating um so they're constraining but liberating at the same time and one of the things that I think, you know, argues for the superiority of certain traditional forms, especially in the arts, for example, uh, as opposed to um, liberal paradigms of scientific education, is that um, the, is the role of rationalism. So you can see the beauty in poetry. You can hear the beauty in a symphony. And um, to study that, to figure out how you can work within that form, maybe expand the form, maybe change it. But you nonetheless, you know, have a benchmark, have something to relate to, which then becomes, you know, um, a, a, a helps inspire creativity in both directions, whether it's following in the form or rebelling against it. The form itself is very valuable for that. Liberalism, I fear, and it's, it's not alone in this. There are many other um, varieties of ideology, both on the left, but even on the right as well. Um, but liberalism, I think, has much too uh, high a view of human intellect and uh, that there is a tendency. We've talked about, you know, the tension between uh, the freedom of the spirit uh, in liberalism and uh, the, you know, sort of intellectual truth that liberalism thinks it has apprehended. I think overall, however, liberalism has this tendency to default to utility, to default to uh, the reign of intelligence and the idea that we can manage and manipulate everything even to the point of managing and manipulating our emotions, ultimately, of course, with uh, with, with chemicals, with with um, with pharmaceuticals, and that um, you know, if if people are unadjusted in a liberal world, if you know, if the the pressures of doing their job are keeping them up at night, if they are you know sort of unhappy in their personal relationships, that uh, the market will provide something that will solve the human problem once and for all by um, you know by chemical means as opposed to uh, by spiritually confronting or socially confronting the uh, the problem. I'm sorry, Thane, I interrupted uh, a question from you. Oh, no, that's okay. I was just, I'm kind of noticing how our, our the conversation is flowing. And um, so I wanted to, to kind of chapterize this in a, in a way. Um, we're already moving there, but let's move sort of towards, you know, why we, what the problem is, right? Because there's this feeling... Um, Sam, you kind of brought it up. Deneen seems to be uh, really calling calling it out in his books that, that there's some sort of crisis of liberalism at the moment. I think you guys are touching on why that is, but I just wanted to sort of put a, a little bit of a stake here that, you know, why is that from your perspective? If we could delve into that a little bit, that would be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that will lead to a, re a really interesting set of, you know, agreements and disagreements between Dan and me. Um, so, you know, I, I think that th that we are talking about liberalism because of Donald Trump uh, and the so-called populist wave and it, it, of, uh, of the many effects of the, that political phenomenon. Uh, one, thanks to the 
a thinker Patrick Deneen is that there's a kind of ongoing referendum on liberalism, which Deneen, you know, really did trace back hundreds of years. Uh, and, you know, in fairness, he also talked about John Stuart Mill and some of the, you know, kind of the, the details that that we've been discussing. I, I think that, you know, um, Deneen's view of, of liberalism maybe homogenizes too much and then rejects it, it, it all totalistically. Um, and in part because I think Deneen um, thinks there's some, you know, alternative to liberalism, which would either, you know, not suffer the same problems or have, you know, better problems, uh, you know, to, to solve. And I guess that's where I part ways with him. And so I tell a story in which there are some promising features of, of liberalism, especially in the second and third stages that Dan discussed, you know, and that liberals have not kept the promises that they began to make uh, in imagining a world of free and equal you know, citizens or humans on a worldwide basis. And, you know, my, my indictment really does fall heavily on what Dan called the fourth stage of liberalism, when, you know, liberals begin to offer principled reasons why they think liberalism should not even try to keep its promises. Now, if it did so, I'm not claiming that, you know, utopia would immediately result, um, because I think I am in profound agreement with Dan that liberalism as a program, as we've been talking about it, you know, faces a lot of difficulties that it's never solved. And it's hard to see that it could ever solve them to everyone's satisfaction. Um, you know, like this balance between its kind of rationalist and technocratic side and its romantic side for one, you know, for, for another, you know, this tension between the, you know, the, the moral aspirations it had and the economic means it, it, to which it turned to fulfill those aspirations, which in our time have become what we call neoliberalism, um, and which ha I think led to a lot of social turmoil and, unhappiness and, you know, um, right-wing breakthrough uh, in, in the United States and elsewhere. And so it's not as if, you know, I'm suggesting that uh, there's no problem, but I'm, I am suggesting that would be a little bit more discriminating about liberalism than Deneen was, because if we were, we couldn't reject it as, as totalistically. Uh, and we'd have to figure out how to, you know, imagine parts of it uh, as worthy of rescue and imagine, you know, other ways of keeping liberal promises than any liberals yet have, you know, located. So I think I'll um, maybe say two things. Uh, you know, Patrick Deneen is a, a friend and someone I admire very much. Um, I do think that the label that he and some of his associates have adopted recently, post-liberalism, has two very serious problems. Uh, the first is it gives far, far too much credit to liberalism. And uh, so Patrick, in part inspired, I think, by um, you know, a series of teachers ultimately going back um, you know, uh, in terms of influence to Leo Strauss, 
has this view that uh, America was indeed founded as a liberal state from the very beginning. So in rejecting liberalism, it seems to require rejecting the United States Constitution, rejecting a lot of um, rejecting, you know, 200 years of American history, or at least, you know, uh, uh, a large part of it. And, you know, whatever you salvage is going to be, you know, sort of the antithesis, I guess, or the, you know, the components that don't fit in with uh, the, the, the mainstream of American life. Um, I just don't I don't think that's intellectually uh, correct. I think he's mistaken to say that, uh, you know, this uh, enlightenment context or whatever you want to call it of the American founding fathers of people like James Madison is identical with liberalism or is a part of liberalism or is necessarily even the father of all the liberalisms that came later. I don't want to completely dismiss Patrick's argument because, you know, it is there are um, true elements to it, but I think it goes too far and is, you know, too sweeping. The other problem is that in, in framing yourself as a post-liberal, it seems to be saying that, you know, whatever might come after liberalism is preferable to liberalism. And clearly that's not the case. We have seen in the world many regimes that have succeeded liberal regimes. And uh, in, you know, I think pretty much every instance they have been far worse regimes, far worse regimes by the standards of, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, by any conservative standard that Patrick Dean or anyone else would want to accept. The Soviet Union was a lot worse than the liberalizing late days of the Tsar and the Kerensky Republic. Uh, the Nazi Germany was worse than the Weimar Republic. This is not to say that Weimar or Kerensky, you know, these are uh, models that anyone is going to want to endorse, but you could do much worse. And with Hitler and Stalin and, and you know, even Lenin, for that matter, you certainly did do far worse. So uh, and you could do worse today as well. And in what form that might take, we don't know. But, um, you know, it's it's um, something we need to be careful about. So as a conservative, which is what I how I would think of myself, um, I, I don't there's plenty that I criticize, criticize about liberalism. I am opposed to liberalism as it is now, because I think it's, you know, it has this metastasizing tendency and liberalism itself is very intolerant. It is uh, it prescribes, you know, much more than I think it can prescribe. And it, and it tries to smash its opposite opposition. And in fact, to such a degree that, you know, even I mean, Donald Trump. OK, we can argue whatever about Donald Trump personally. But a lot of Americans who, you know, disagree with the Democratic Party or disagree with, you know, progressive ideas are being labeled fascists and being labeled as pathological specimens of humanity. Deplorables, of course, was the, the phrase that Hillary Clinton used. Um, and that is you, you can't have a polity that's going to function well if you have especially this elite class, which is basically liberalism is the philosophy of our ruling class in politics, in business, in the academy. Um, the academy, you know, being a, a slight, uh, you know, deviation from that, but not really. I mean, really, in the academy, I think you have people who are still fundamentally more liberal than they realize, but they want to push liberalism in a you know, sort of harder left direction uh, in, in the business world and in uh, government. You know, the kind of liberalism you have is it is this Fukuyama, you know, sort of 1990s, uh, what, what Sam has called neoliberalism. It's not a term I like to use for a variety of reasons, but, you know, that's that's the general picture. Um, so anyway, and I see that as having, you know, sort of no sense of proportion. It is it because because it is so convinced of its own intellectual perfection and its moral perfection as well. There is no room to argue with it. And this leads to another paradox of liberalism. Liberals, on the one hand, and this is a point where I, I disagree with some of the uh, uh, things that my, my friend Patrick Deneen says in his new book, Regime Change. I disagree to, to you know, some degree as well with some of the things that Sam says in his book. 
but liberalism has a complicated relationship with democracy. And on the one hand, it's very easy to find liberal intellectuals who think that democracy is a bad thing because you shouldn't have, you know, the, the impoverished masses voting on, you know, people's uh, permanent property rights and so forth. On the other hand, uh, expansions of the franchise, certainly in the English-speaking world, have almost always been carried out by the more liberal party over the last, you know, 250 years or so. Um, so liberalism, I th and, and now, of course, we have this phrase liberal democracy, which is meant to be the holy of holies and the thing that no one can criticize. So um, uh, liberalism has this, this, liberalism today in the 21st century has a tension between, on the one hand, being the ideology and, in fact, the supreme conformist ideology, the canon and the, the catechism of our ruling class. But it also believes that you should have democracy. Well, there's a problem there. If you have democracy, what if the people elect Donald Trump? So um, you have this. This, I think, is the crux of the crisis of liberalism. On the one hand, it wants to believe that it has the mandate of heaven from the people, that it has the that it speaks for the vox populi. But it doesn't. And in fact, the people are not nearly as liberal as either their, you know, sort of capitalist, uh, you know, leaders or their, you know, sort of progressive, academic, journalistic liberal leaders would like them to be and require them to be. And um, even going back before the Donald Trump era and before Patrick Dean's book, uh, you know, Why Liberalism Failed, it seems to me liberalism was already in crisis. Um, so I, and I'll, I'll name, you know, sort of two or three major salient points, one of them being, of course, foreign policy. So at the end of the Cold War, because the Soviet Union had collapsed, liberals had a absolute confidence that their set of beliefs, liberalism, was going to be the end of history. It was going to, you know, everywhere around the world was ultimately going to come around to liberal democracy. Uh, they thought this was going to happen in communist China simply by a process of opening up the markets. And that proved to be mistaken over the course of 30 years. They thought that in other places you might have a dictator or tyrant who had to be violently removed. And once you did that, you would be greeted by flower, greeted with flowers by people who were already basically liberal Democrats. They were already culturally Americans. All they needed in order to express that was getting rid of the dictator. And we found out in Iraq and in Afghanistan, it doesn't work that way. That in fact, you know, bonds of religion and tribe and many other things uh, and simply interest can be uh, much more uh, difficult to overcome than liberals have imagined. So you get a crisis in foreign policy. You also get a crisis in foreign policy, ironically, that's related to uh, the economic success of liberalism. So, you know, one of the uh, talking points that many liberals will bring up is, well, thanks to free trade, thanks to the expansion of commerce uh, between the developing world and, and the, the uh, you know, first world, you have uh, much less global poverty than you had in the past. So in China, you've had a rise in the standard of living. In much of Africa, too, you've had a rise in the standard of living, certainly in India as well. And so um, you have had a rise of the non-Western world through economics. But it turns out that because liberals have overstated the degree to which their ideology is universal, the rise of the non-Western world actually is going to pose strategic and other problems for uh, liberalism itself, because India is not necessarily all that liberal. It certainly is. It's democratic. It's, you know, it's becoming it's a weird mixture of socialism and capitalism, but it's certainly becoming more prosperous over time. China, again, has become, uh, you know, um, it's, it's scaled back a bit, but it had in the past, you know, 20, 30 years become a major global economic player. It entered the liberal sort of world economy, but it didn't liberalize at home. But in any case, all across the way, you're seeing that um, Western liberalism feels more and more conflicted between its Western identity and its universal claims. And that's having major difficult, major problems in, in, in foreign policy. And, you know, we can talk about some of the ones that are flaring up right now.
Then also at home, in terms of domestic economic policy, um, here you see two camps of liberalism, I think, have uh, one camp of liberalism has a very strong criticism to make of another. And so my friends at the Ludwig von Mises Institute and among the more hardline libertarians, they would point to the fact that the liberalism of the 21st century is in fact not liberal enough, that it's not free market enough, that uh, as a result of the contradictions between, you know, uh, the appearance of a free market and the prosperity that it generates, but really government control or strong manipulation of the banking system and of the monetary system, you have uh, recurrent banking crises. And every time one of these flares up, as happened in 2007 and 2008 with the Great Recession, the you know, Federal Reserve and the United States federal government, they kind of try to sweep the, you know, the monster under the carpet. And they say, OK, uh, we're going to have some bailouts. We're going to have some adjustments in terms of Fed policy. Uh, but you know, my more radical capitalist friends, they say, this isn't working. And all you're doing is delaying the reckoning that is ultimately going to come when the you know, government control of the money supply and you know, sort of a capitalist free economy are going to you know, come into conflict and break down. So there's an economic crisis as well as a foreign policy crisis. And all these things do relate to uh, the, uh, the, the, not just the philosophical you know, tensions within liberalism, but also this fundamental difficulty liberalism has in just backing off a little bit, right? So liberals, because they have such a, you know, they think they have the, the correct economic view that must be pursued. They think their own intellects kind of give them the ability to reshape humanity in our country, but also around the world. When you tell them, look, your experiments in, you know, not just in living your own life, but in trying to make other people economically and militarily and in other ways live the lives that you want them to live, these experiments have failed. And therefore, you should be a little chastened and, you know, not try to be as aggressive in, in enforcing these transformations. Liberals respond by saying, well, you're just a fascist if you say that, or you're just, you know, um, some sort of, you know, bizarre pathological mutant. And really, you know, you didn't receive the right kind of education or you're off your medications. Um, but one way or another, you, your criticisms are illegitimate. Really, the only space for criticism of uh, the liberal, you know, sort of uh, philosophy, the liberal church, really, is uh, within the liberal team itself. You can have very mild criticisms. Liberalism, um, you know, you can look at our, our major national newspapers. The, the spectrum of opinion in those newspapers is very limited. And it's, it's kind of comical because if you look at, you know, the designated conservative columnists in all of these newspapers, they're, you know, basically what would be called liberal conservatives. And they all hate Donald Trump as much, if not more so, than the, you know, sort of progressive left-leaning columnists at the very same newspapers. And these institutions are all liberal institutions, and they just cannot admit that there are legitimate criticisms, certainly from the right, but also coming from the left as well. So Bernie Sanders and many progressives have, you know, real legitimate gripes against this liberal elite establishment. So um, I think this is where you're getting not just uh, Donald Trump, but in fact, it's also where the Occupy Wall Street movement came from. It's where the surge in support for Bernie Sanders over the last decade or so was coming from. And really, I think if liberals do not correct themselves and are not willing to be more tolerant, more open, more genuinely liberal in a certain sense of being generous to people on the right and people on the left who are criticizing them, or people who aren't even on the spectrum, who just have, you know, independent, you know, sort of ad hoc criticisms, if liberalism doesn't become more self-corrective and more welcoming of, you know, the criticisms coming from others, it's going to become very brittle, even more brittle than it is today, and this crisis is going to shatter it entirely. And to be honest, I think it's already got, you know, serious fault lines that show that, you know, this thing is going to crack and shatter completely, um, which is going to be um, a lot of people who don't like liberalism are going to be very shocked by what comes in the wreckage. Uh, they're already shocked. A lot of these folks don't like Donald Trump on the left, certainly, but even on the right. And yet, you know, people like Donald Trump may be the wave of the future. 
if liberalism just completely collapses like this. So that I think that would have be the way I characterize the the crisis. So you know, it it sounds like there's actually a fair bit of agreement uh, between Dan and me compared to someone like Deneen that in a sense liberalism you know needs to do something big to save itself from its own worst pathologies i think um maybe we have opposite reasons for taking that view i think that in a sense liberalism has to be saved from the liberals to realize the you know broken promises that uh, of freedom and equality that liberals have made. I think Dan's reasons are different, but you know are are really kind of I think based in the correct perception that what follows liberalism, even in spite of all of its pathologies, could be worse rather than better. Um, but you know I actually agree with most of what he said in kind of filling out his picture and I just I'm going to kind of reverse a, a few uh, you know the order in which he presented them just because I think they're they're all very important um, points and I want to address them I agree completely I would even emphasize more strongly that liberals have never fully embraced democracy uh, and that was very graphic before in the 1880s the phrase liberal democracy was coined when most liberals outright rejected uh, democracy. Uh, Dan, I think, correctly points out that liberal parties have backed, you know, the expansion of suffrage, um, but, you know, then regularly been disappointed to see that conservatives win the elections under the expanded electorates, you know, uh, with the 1884 Reform Act and in, uh, in in the United Kingdom being, the you know, the best example. Um, but, you know, the question is what 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 to do about that and and you know my impulse would be to imagine a liberalism that can you know not just make its peace with democracy whose great prophet once again was Jean-Jacques Rousseau but to you know think that self-rule is part of what would be involved in freedom and equality of all and therefore a liberalism that devolves into preaching or controlling from on high elitism and technocracy is not very liberal. Um, you know, so I agree also that liberals, especially those who have claimed the mantle of liberalism in our day, are incredibly insular and and reject uh, criticism. Uh, I would say that they reject criticism even from fellow liberals, let alone from non-liberals, but it remains absolutely scandalous that in the era of Donald Trump, in fairness, only a minority of Americans voted for the man, but still, he won the presidency once and may again. The New York Times did not have one columnist uh, who was a regular supporter, and they you know, did a, 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 at least a fairly honorable thing in occasionally inviting Dan uh, to write write for the opinion pages in the absence of had it having any regular employee who kind of was at in the least bit sympathetic to, you know, the, the popular will of, you know, over 40% of the American people. Um, and, and yet, uh, I, I do think, you know, where Dan and I differ on this point is that, you know, uh, uh, what d democracy and, and, and having a, a political, 
you know, idea that it is made appealing to the people doesn't mean it's not going to be a liberal one. It, it means that liberals have not yet kind of shouldered the responsibility to make their own ideas uh, sufficiently popular. So then the question is, what have they done instead? And here I completely agree with, you know, Dan, that the errors have been economic and, you know, um, kind of geopolitical and especially militarist. And just to, you know, spell out, you know, what, what Dan's already said, you know, I, I think that, you know, Trump is, and, and his popularity, you know, um, it, it is a direct response to the, you know, mainstream consensus for a long time, uh, including among liberals that, you know, markets would solve all problems, you know, and that was especially orthodox opinion after the so-called end of history in 1989, when in fact, I think a lot of voters for Trump uh, were understandably responding to deindustrialization and, you know, you know, what Trump in his inaugural called American carnage, urban blight, uh, you know, you know, uh, the abandonment of the countryside by, you know, liberals and, you know, the opioid epidemic and many of those uh, areas. And what what I guess I would say is that far from thinking that Dan's libertarian friends are right, that what is needed is a purer market that we revive some of those, you know, third stage liberal ideas of people like Keynes who concluded that it's true that the economic domain matters as an instrument of freedom and equality, but not just to let people be free, but to create the social conditions for them to be free and equal enough so they don't feel in these enormous hierarchies in the face of, you know, the cultural and economic elites who you know, seem to do run things from on high. And then there's the kind of foreign policy context to which Dan alluded. And, you know, liberals became apologists for empire uh, and not for liberalism. And that was the whole history of American foreign policy since, you know, certainly since 1989, I think before. But um, and what that meant is not something that Americans as ordinary people could see as something serving their interests and values. Uh, and so the talk of global freedom, you know, was so hollow when there wasn't American freedom uh, and the American dream was smashed by the very people declaring wars in the name of it around the globe. And so uh, I'm totally with Dan on that. And, and actually, there's a lot of consensus. Um, uh, uh, just, I think, some very deep disagreement about like the reasons why we might have cause to indict liberals. I think it's for betraying liberalism. Well, so yeah, I think one question I had on this, sorry, just real quick. Well, if you'd like to respond, I just I do have a a follow up question, uh, maybe when you're done. But go ahead and respond, uh, Daniel. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, one thing uh, that Sam and I might agree on as uh, a remedy or one way to address some of the problems of liberalism, um, I think it is important to have that self responsibility, and I think that federalism, not just in the sort of hokey 
sense that you know you often hear from politicians on the, um, the campaign trail, but really the idea that you, you, we have localities of many kinds and we need to be uh, let them have you know um, their own uh, leeway. They can't simply be pushed into an economic mo model that is coming to them not just from Washington D.C. but in fact at this point from you know a, an entire global apparatus. Um, so that's one of the things that makes me you know a, sympathetic to nationalism or economic nationalism in particular is this idea that instead of having a world without economic borders, a world in which uh, capitalism, uh, capital and uh, you know, goods and even persons are flowing you know, without any restrictions, uh, without any kind of borders or you know, tariffs or anything, um, I think actually, no, you need to be conscious of the particular needs and not just the needs, but also the feelings and desires of a political locality. And that's true at the nation, nation state level, but it's also going to be true at regional levels. And that's why, for example, when you do have uh, the creation of a rust belt as a result of jobs, you know, going where capital can get the highest returns on cheapest labor or least regulation, that, um, you know, you can make a very strong economic case, hey, this is great for GDP, but the amount of cultural destruction, cultural, not just in, you know, uh, I, I should say social destruction, the amount of, you know, uh, people losing the things that they had taken for granted as being uh, economic points of orientation in their lives in terms of their jobs, not just the jobs they currently have, but the industry in which they work, uh, the skills that they possess. When you, when you dislocate all of that, um, you are going to have political consequences. You're also going to have social consequences, epidemiological consequences in terms of, uh, you know, people feeling like they have no future, no hope, and might be turning to drugs to, you know, sort of overcome that. So I see economic nationalism not as a panacea, not as something that's going to solve all economic problems, um, or let alone all, all social problems, but as something we have to be prepared to entertain and to use appropriately and, and to a certain degree, as opposed to my liberal friends who believe that, you know, any kind of economic irrationality in their minds, any kind of inefficiency is unjustified and, you know, is, um, uh, is unacceptable and in fact is even unthinkable. I would also say that, um, you know, federalism is how I look at the world security needs as well. Um, so I don't believe that, you know, the West and the United States are always in the wrong, although we have a really terrible track record for a really long time. And I certainly don't believe that if, you know, for example, the People's Republic of China became, which I think it's still quite far from being, but became, you know, a dominant power in East Asia or, you know, in the world as a whole, which I think is very unlikely. But nevertheless, there are a lot of, of problems that can emerge from, you know, other powerful great states, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, coming into the, uh, taking the place of what's currently called the, the liberal international order. But I also think the liberal international order is um, too liberal and perhaps not international enough. But I mean that, of course, as a conservative rather than someone who might be coming from a more progressive direction. So it seems to me that, you know, what I would like to see happen is for Europe to take more responsibility and ultimately almost full responsibility for its own security, uh, whether that means, you know, turning NATO over to the Europeans and not having us as deeply involved. We can still be a backstop. We can still be there to help in the case of, you know, a real, you know, sort of World War style crisis. But even something like the Russian invasion of Ukraine is something that the Europeans are in a better position to handle than we are. And, um, you know, we should make them responsible for doing that, because if they don't have the necessity of having to take care of it for themselves, they will simply default to trying to play both sides and, you know, relying on American money and American arms to fill the gap. And we know that's not going to work, which, you know, I mean, this is this is a, a terrible thing. And it, it breaks my heart that liberals think they're being humanitarian by saying, well, America's got all the arms, they've got all the money. 
you know, they're just going to dump this on, you know, the Ukrainians and that's going to solve the problem. That hasn't worked over the course of the last 18 months. I don't think it's going to work over the course of however long this gets protracted. We tried this in Afghanistan. We said as long as we're giving enough arms, as long as we have enough you know, money that the Afghan you know, government is getting, then it's going to beat the Taliban. It didn't happen. There are a lot of differences, of course, between Afghanistan and Ukraine, but I think that our approach is the same, which is simply dump huge amounts of resources on this and the problem will go away. It's not going to go away because it's, you know, there are much deeper issues here. Um, so I want, you know, federalism, I'd like East Asia to be able to, you know, sort of attend to its own security needs, which again would be helpful, I think, because we Americans with our, you know, sort of global power, our economic dominance and our huge nuclear arsenal, um, those things, you know, naturally frighten um, other powers like China and like uh, Russia. And uh, that's not to say that, you know, our dominance justifies any bad thing that either of those states might do. But, um, you know, we do have this tendency, I think, to, you know, create a, a need for these, these powers to feel as if they have to balance us. Now, maybe in their own regions, they'll feel that too. But, you know, in East Asia in particular, not just East Asia, but South Asia as well, China has, you know, a variety of significant powers that would be a major impediment to Chinese, um, you know, hegemony. Uh, that's true of India. That's true of Japan. It's true of uh, South Korea. Um, there are a lot of, I, I, you know... The, the image that comes to mind would be the Lilliputians tying down Gulliver, but these are not Lilliputians. These are actually, you know, sort of mini Gullivers. So um, federalism is something that I, I would point to, again, in a, a sense among nation states as well as uh, locally as being, um, you know, a promising remedy for some of liberalism's defects. So I, I'll just comment briefly that I'm 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 in agreement with at least a, a, a substantial part of what Dan said, but may, maybe again for different uh, reasons. I mean I I think that it's it's true that liberals have been intolerant of diversity and not understanding that they need to kind of imagine you know the globalization of liberal values and, and for that matter you know the 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 liberalization of uh, America with all of its regional differences um, in a way that is kind of more respectful of and works through diversity and allows kind of a lot of different syntheses of inheritance and modernity um, and local difference and universal values. But I think my critique of American foreign policy is, is slightly less radical um, in the case of the Ukraine war, I think, you know, there was just not a recognition about um, what the conditions were going to be in which, um, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin would decide uh, to engage in, in, in these expansionist wars. Um, and, and then above all, in the last, you know, 18 months, there was just a, a an indecision um, about you know exactly given exactly what would it would take to beat Putin or push him entirely out of Ukraine's territory. There was a decision to you know have a stalemated war, which it really has been from its almost opening days. And then what's happened now is a failure, in spite of all the money and weaponry wasted not to mention human life, is just an, a, 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 a kind of decision to tolerate an endless war, at least until, you know, some other president is elected. I worry the same's happening in Israel, where, uh, 
you know, with with American support, um, there's you know the the defense of a you know at least somewhat liberal state uh, for all of its sins against you know uh, a, a terrorist attack as you know occurred in our country after 9/11, but one that is likely to be a quagmire, unwin an unwinnable war and so you know to me it's the militarist means and the fantasies of like a military victory that would provide a quick fix for liberals that really has 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 saved them in so many instances past and present the trouble of facing just the sheer difficulty of propagating liberalism as a universalistic creed in a world of you know difference that is you know sometimes you know, intransigent and requires very different means of, you know, of, of, of modernizing. And I'll just say very briefly, I think something liberals have tended to be uncomfortable with, and yet is a reality they can't afford to overlook, is uh, the persistent power of nationalism or patriotism, um, you know, identification with, um, you know, whether it's a nation state or whether it's some other kind of polity, there are persistent, uh, you know, um, loyalties that people feel similarly with respect to religion and that's this is something that you know we see in foreign policy it's also something we see at home and you know it's why uh, these are the things that you often have uh, counter liberals of, of various kinds whether they're extremists and you know authoritarians or whether they are you know conservatives they will tend to you know focus on um, patriotism or nationalism and religion as being the alternatives or the alternative sources of legitimacy and support uh, as opposed to liberalism with its intellectualism, its you know view of universal rights, and uh, its view of you know sort of efficiency and consumer self-satisfaction, and we can even expand that right because the, there there is a romantic case to be made for the consumer economy that oh it's you know I mean isn't it fun to have all of these toys um, and there is a sense in which you know the the market hedonism really does have a certain parallel to this romantic personal hedonism, whether that's in sexuality or whatever else. And there's this idea that, you know, if only we can we can have these new experiences which should be available on the market, maybe even, you know, there are certainly liberals who would say that prostitution or sex work, as it's now called, that all these things should be legalized as well as every kind of recreational drug. And um, I don't think that that fills the needs of human nature. And I think that actually things like religion and patriotism are very fundamental. And so this, I think, is one of the weaknesses and one of the sources of crisis for liberalism, that it's constantly looking for not just consumeristic, but broadly speaking, hedonic solutions to problems that ultimately are going to be problems that, you know, uh, are probably most easily mediated through some of these more traditional kinds of institutions and human loyalties. You know, I'm with you mostly. I, I think that, you know, the, clearly, religion and it, it, you know was a kind of classic um, example of the kind of authority authority that you know liber, against which liberals set themselves. On the other hand, liberals you know found ways like some you know in religious traditions, notably Protestants in the North Atlantic, of getting along. Um, maybe you say that Protestants adopted liberalism in the guise of Christianity in in their in you know some of their you know um, last mainline uh, you know forms, but 
nonetheless, there wasn't, you know, an inevitable hostility. I'm even more in agreement about nationalism because liberals invented the thing uh, or made it, you know, wor uh, the, the world-conquering ideology that it was on, on the premise that people could emancipate themselves and have freedom and equality only in groups. And it was natural to think that those groups would align with language and, you know, eth ethnos. Um, so I, 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 I think I'm a little more resistant to the claim that um, while liberals are for experimentation, they're, you know, always going to see those experiments devolve into kind of, you know, itch-scratching, itch you know, hedonism. For one thing, a lot of experiments can be seen to fail. I mean, most experiments in science fail. Why wouldn't that be true of liberal experiments in living? So if someone wants to try, uh, you know, some new form of personal experience, you know, uh, in case it's of relevance to everyone else, the liberal view is that he should be allowed to do so. Um, of course, we should be concerned about the cost to everyone else, even of uh, things that individuals choose to do on their own. But maybe that person concludes that the experiment it failed. Opioids, uh, you know, might seem appealing at one moment and turn out to be grievously or catastrophically, you know, bad at, at another moment. Um, and, you know, th th then I think it's just really important to acknowledge that for the romantic liberals, it wasn't about scratching an itch. Cre creative, creative, you know, uh, production was, you know, might be fulfilling, but it was a kind of end in itself. And, you know, they didn't want to marketize it as something that was about, like, you know, get getting one's, uh, like, fulfillment, uh, just not via, you know, a, a, a kind of consumer product, but through their own creative act. And, you know, the, the last thing I'd say is that um, there's, there is just a deep problem that we, we need markets, uh, not just for the modicum of, you know, of well-being that is required for all of us to do what we do, including Dan, uh, you know, Conservatives live, you know, in in circumstances of enough abundance that they can pursue, you know, their their beliefs. And without it, they would be, you know, uh, on the streets, you know, seeking uh, their livelihood some other way. Um, and it's it's just true that like every artist needs a palette. You know, that could come from tradition. It could come from new things provided by markets. But, you know, Keynes and others recognize that markets also have these, you know, unintended effects, hierarchy, conformity. And, and you know, there's no reason to think we couldn't, you know, master those dilemmas and, you know, deploy uh, a liberalism that is more sensible about, uh, you know, the 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 uses and, you know, perversities of its own tools like markets. Yeah, I guess there are um, a couple of uh, points of disagreement here. Um, I should clarify first, though, that in, in criticizing hedonism, I'm not just thinking about, you know, sort of the, the vulgar notion of it as simply living to excess and, you know, sort of uh, grapes dipped in chocolate or whatever, <laughs> but rather um, the idea that the end of life is simply, you know, either the avoidance of pain or the pursuit of pleasure. 
um, because it's a, it's a very low yeah. you know view of of human life and its aims. And yet, I do think liberalism has a I tendency agree. to default to that, in part because liberalism is scared of talking about higher aims that may seem as if they would then you know lend themselves to more authoritative systems. And so you get this very ironic, you know, um, soft kind of, um, you know, lowered expectations for humanity, which then become expectations that can be managed by liberals. One of the things I think that has shocked liberals... I think there are higher expectations. I mean, Mm. it's about, you know, creating yourself. And, you know, it's something no one's done before. And the template is not given to you by tradition or, you know, tribe. Uh, and okay, but that's but the highest why, but why does that but why does that have to remain within a liberal frame, right? So Nietzsche, for example, would very oh, much endorse that. I agree. Well, but completely. that's what I'm getting at. I think liberalism, it it ceases to be liberalism once it becomes Nietzsche, right? So there's For a sense sure. in which you know, if creativity rather than liberty or whatever else you know we might say that liberalism stands for, but if creativity is the found you know the fundamental principle, then I think liberalism that's what is Mill a said. That's what Mill said. Higher pleasures are. The things that we, you know, create rather than but, but just higher pleasures, precisely. poetry well, rather they're, they're than created, but they, Sorry. Well, he it's, he was working within this utilitarian framework, but he burst out of it. And Tocqueville, other liberals are very clear that it's this creativity as an end in itself that is what we're here to do, and that's as high an end as you could possibly imagine. Yeah, so I disagree because I think even when, especially when we're talking about Mill, that creativity is constrained by the rules of liberalism itself. And actually it's constrained For also sure. in Mill's case by Mill's own tastes. Um, that creativity true. would that not expand true. to, you know, some of the extravagant forms of romantic or anarchistic uh, creativity. So again, I, I think that the creativity you get in liberalism is actually quite limited. And that's one of the contradictions mm-hmm. and problems for liberalism. Um, but, I, but I do want to say as well that, you know, there are... Um, well, perhaps I shouldn't even, uh, you know, uh, drift off into more, you know, sort of uh, esoteric questions of Platonism and Epicureanism and and other such things. But I, I do think liberalism no, these are you know, important because, you know, there's a deep debate in Western philosophy to which you're alluding about whether pleasure should be conceived of as the privation of a prior pain. Plato talks about this and, you know, it's the reason why he can conclude that contemplation is the highest life because it doesn't involve fixing some prior malady. Uh, and, you know, maybe we'd conclude that Mill was working still within a hedonist framework because of his utilitarianism. I just want to insist that to all those who say that liberals have no account of the highest end, I think it's mistaken because it's true it's no longer contemplation, but it it, it is creativity, liberty for the sake of of self-creation uh and you know that doesn't that's not you know necessarily in the hedonist framework that mill you know certainly did you know think within yeah so i i do have uh i continue to have reservations about that account but uh i don't want to simply you know make it a back and forth um or you know just just a con- confutation and, and refutation um it suffices to my ends to say that I think, um, you know, the constraints that liberalism applies to creativity undercut to some degree the, you know, creative uh, commitments that liberty ha- uh, that liberal liberalism has. And again, I would point to some of these figures, including Nietzsche. But I mean, we could point to, you know, any number of thinkers in the, the late 19th century who addressed this this exact point. And of course, 
Nietzsche hated the idea of a nation of shopkeepers. And I don't think that liberalism can ever get away from this, that, you know, um, and it's precisely what you, what you said earlier, too, which is you're right. We need to have our palates. And that, that means both in terms of traditions and in terms of backgrounds, culture. But it also means material palates as well. And I'm sure you would emphasize right. that point. But uh, there's a sense in which simply providing people with palates doesn't make them artists. So there are. Sure. And the other problem, too, is that artists, you know, in art especially. And here again, you know, Nietzsche, but any number of, you know, uh, you know any number of uh Either philosophers or artists would, I think, you know, take this point of view. Art is probably the least egalitarian, you know, uh, thing that human beings engage in. That, um, you know, I, I think very few people would say there's no difference between a masterwork and, you know, an amateur's uh, attempt. And this, I think, this is maybe the, you know, philosophically where liberalism collapses because if you're talking about creativity as the supreme human endeavor, um, and if indeed, you know, the kind of difference between a masterwork and, you know, an ordinary attempt is as stark as, you know, many artists and philosophers would say that it is, then you can't have, you know, well, there certainly is an inegalitarian side to liberalism, but it might be even more inegalitarian than most liberals, you know, who otherwise have qualms about equality, even more inegalitarian than they would be willing to accept. I think you do ultimately get to something that does look um, so transformational that liberalism itself would be, you know, cast uh, cast off as a, a kind of old skin of, uh, you know, something that is transforming itself into a radically new kind of entity. And again, um, you know, that uh, I, I take your point. Liberalism has that element to it, but I think that's also the element that tends to lead liberalism out of liberalism itself. Okay. Um... Coming back to the question I had earlier, you guys have somewhat touched on it, uh, but I, I have felt it a little bit during this conversation and also while reading both of um, Deneen's books. Uh, so let me try and sum this up. There's What I'm trying to get at is when critiquing a particular uh, philosophy or an ideology, there's this difference between what the ideology claims that it wants and that you know the, the, the philosophy is actually stating and then ultimately what the, the practitioners that put it into place, or even the practitioners that it gives birth to. Um, so with your guys' critique of the problem, you know, how much of it do you see as being a practitioner problem, as in the current elite are manifesting a you know, crappy version of liberalism that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, or versus how much of it is a problem of liberalism for giving birth to that that set of practitioners in the first place. I guess what I'm getting at is how do we look at these, I don't, rather than conflating them, I want to separate them. So I don't know if that elicits any thoughts to you, on your guys' end, but. I think that's clear. No, it's a great question. It's a central question. I'll just say briefly that, you know, I, I, I'm trying to make the argument that in a sense is used to be associated with socialists who said, you know, that they're, they're, theory has never been tried. Um, and then, you know, the hard question for me is what about all the liberals who you say are somehow betraying their own views? Um, and it's a hard question as it was or is for socialists. Um, but I think, um, though we have to have, you know, a, a critique of ideologies that somehow you know, lets us understand why they're enacted the way they are. Um, we also have to leave room for ideologies 
to have their own, you know, um, experiments uh, in institutionalizing themselves. And there are going to be failures. And, you know, I regard liberalism as a failure in its misalliance with laissez-faire and neoliberalism and, you know, the things we've talked about on this podcast. But to me, that doesn't mean that one couldn't credibly rescue elements of it for an, a, a new liberalism that would would produce, you know, better agents um, and, l you know, less of a, a gap between its aspirations and its realities. That's a very difficult, you know, if, you know, eventuality to, you know, to foresee anytime soon. But then the question is, what's the alternative? I think I agree with Dan that, you know, I condemn those who claim the name liberal, you know, and so I, I want to see someone else in charge. The question is, should it be a better crop of liberals? Is that what we should hope for and work towards or something else? Yeah, I'd agree that a better crop of liberals is possible. And, um, you know, the liberal tradition is, is very large and uh, it has many admirable characters within it. So, um, you know, I know Lionel Trilling is a figure in uh, Sam's book, and I think there is uh, merit in much of Lionel Trilling's thought. Um, I think a liberal who I would look at with a great deal of admiration is Alexis de Tocqueville. And in part that I, that I think, you know, in this is partly something that everyone would recognize and partly something that perhaps I would emphasize more than others. But um, uh, Tocqueville is an aristocrat. He is someone who is not coming to liberalism as someone who is convinced of the liberalism as the perfect, you know, sort of uh, platonic ideal that he would aim for. But rather, he's looking at the conditions of the world and he says, you know, within these conditions, we'd better have liberalism. And in fact, the form of liberalism that he endorses is a form that um, tries to preserve something of the aristocratic spirit at a time when a kind of mass conformity or a mass dependency, because he's very afraid that you're going to have, you know, this kind of um, that people, especially not that he is talking all about a, a consumer culture. He's at the very beginning of a you know sort of uh, massive boom in consumerism. But clearly, one of Tocqueville's concerns is that people are going to be so preoccupied with petty concerns, including you know just the business of getting stuff, that they will not care about the kind of deeper political commitments that people might have you know been interested in in the past. This is going to make them basically servile, that they're going to want to be taken care of. They're going to, you know, want to have everything provided for them, uh, you know, including their, their basic, you know, sort of material needs. And that this will cause, you know, a, a new kind of despotism, not a despotism whereby a military force crushes everyone and, you know, compels them to obey the orders of one person, but rather that people will simply give up their their freedom that they've earned this by the way i think goes back to what sam was saying earlier it's one of the basic you know fractures and fault lines in liberalism if liberalism has this need uh, this you know i think this this commitment to the you know at least the notion of the heroic individual or that everyone could be a heroic individual but what if you know and i think tocqueville is already aware of this in the early 19th century what if that that belief about you know the capacity creative capacity of individuals is wrong what if people don't want to be creative what if in fact they do want a kind of you know a material free hedonism that may be freedom from fear or it may be you know the provision of just basic social goods but what if that leads them to accept a you know sort of massive new authority over their lives 
and to lose the very kind of creativity um, that used to be characteristic, or at least in Tocqueville's telling, of a more aristocratic society where people felt that they had their own patch of land, but also their own status and their own dignity, even before a king, that an aristocrat felt as if, you know, whatever might happen to him, however much he might lose his money, as long as he had his title, as long as he had his noble birth, that gave him something upon which to pin his sense of self and his sense of creativity, his sense of defiance to the rest of the world. That if you get rid of those aristocratic, um, you know, sort of um, anchors for individuality, what's going to replace them? And Tocqueville, you know, looks for ways that will, you know, other anchors that can be supplied in the absence of aristocratic birth and titles. He puts a lot of emphasis on locality and localism. One of the points that I bring up to conservatives that I talk to, especially young Hill staffers in, uh, in Washington, D.C. here, when you have a global economy, what does it mean to have a local, you know, local self-government? Because the most important issues for your local community are going to be made, you know, in Washington, D.C. Some of them might be made in Beijing in terms of what the factories are going to produce. But local self-government requires not just a moral commitment, not just living in a particular place. It requires talking to your neighbors. It requires having institutions that you all participate in. And it requires seeing their, you know, a real economic um, uh, nexus between these local persons. And if you if you spread that out, if economics becomes delocalized or dislocated, um, you're going to find that local government is, and local culture are going to be very hard to sustain, not simply because there's going to be an identical McDonald's in every comp in every country. Yeah, I mean, that may be one thing, but rather because the economic decisions that have to be made are not going to be made locally. They're going to be made, you know, somewhere far removed from you in a corporate boardroom or in a national capital or in, you know, a transnational gathering in Brussels or in Davos or wherever the case may be. So, um, you know, I think the thing that Tocqueville was counting upon to save liberalism from the lack of uh, the creative anchor that aristocracy used to provide, I think that has failed. And that's one reason why liberalism as a whole is in this crisis. So I very much like um, the kind of liberalism that Tocqueville stands for, but I do fear that Tocqueville himself would have quite a pessimistic uh, view of it in this day and age. Um, and perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll con uh, contain my comment there. Oh, and, and well, well okay. The one, the one, the one addendum I'll add is just, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, is the problem with the people, or is the problem, you know, the, the the liberals themselves, or is it with liberalism, which was a very good question. I would say the problem is that liberalism doesn't recognize its own limits, and that's what we need. So you can have liberalism. I certainly, you know, endorse free markets. I endorse, you know, lots of, you know, uh, civil liberties. But I also think that there are limitations upon these things that liberalism as a philosophy doesn't want to recognize. So in that sense, yes, liberalism is a problem, but um, the key to that is not getting rid of liberalism wholesale. It's rather recognizing that there are other things that can override liberal commitments. Well, we're, we're at an hour and a half. Um, I could listen to you guys all day, and if you guys want to talk, you're welcome to talk uh, all day. Um, so I don't know, do we want to keep, the place to keep going, I assume, would be more on the solution. I think we've very thoroughly flushed out the issues, um, but we are at an hour and a half, and I know you guys have things to do, so. I think we should leave it there. I mean, I I think it would, it's not because I don't, I'm not interested and I don't love Dan. It's more that I think it would tax any listener to go beyond what we've done. Uh, I agree. I think, I think uh, it was, even it, wanting I think more is the good uh... You know, yeah, <laughs> a good philosophy of comedy and also for intellectual discourse. And this you know, lines up a sequel, so. <laughs> right. This is true, yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you guys so much for for uh, participating. I quite enjoyed listening to 
both points of view that you guys had to add. Uh, and hopefully we can do a part two at some point, um, more focused on where to go from here. But that was great. Thank you. Thanks I very much lot. enjoyed Thanks it. Thanks to you both. Very good talking really to you, appreciate Sam. it. Okay. Good talking to you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Take care, you too. We hope you enjoyed this next debate. For more, remember to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter at the underscore Nix, and join our waitlist to stay up to date on platform developments. Tell us at the link below what you'd like to see next, and we'll see you next time.